Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. We looked last week, David is a man after God's own heart. And I tell you, it's impossible to talk about David without talking a little bit about Samuel, obviously Saul. Samuel was very purposeful in who he is and what he was about. Saul was very wayward, right? We saw that. David, a man after God's own heart. And I want to pick up with David again this week and just kind of walk through this and then really tie it in with Solomon. Uh, Because when we talk about the early part of the kings, it's amazing what God did in and through these guys. It's also amazing to look at uh, the reality, the transparency that the word of God gives in terms of their failures, I think it's amazing to watch uh, these guys and see what they went through. Uh, Right now, in terms of where we're at uh, overall, uh, we are kind of headed towards the very end of the Old Testament. And so, actually, I'm going to be gone next week, but John Sondager is going to pick up He's going to talk about that first part of the kings and the the exile and and where uh, that all heads. And then when I get back, we're going to continue on. And pretty shortly, we're going to be into uh, the New Testament. We'll be halfway through uh, the Bible already. And that's pretty remarkable. (laughs) Some of you still betting against me. But anyway, we're going to have a good time with it. And I hope you're learning and growing in this. It's been such a blessing to just take a step back and get a big picture view of the Word of God and the fact that Jesus really is the hero of history. But David and Solomon, in the midst of this, uh, both of them made some pretty horrible decisions. And when we talk about horrible decisions, we're not just talking about bad decisions. We're talking about sinful decisions, decisions that impacted other people, decisions that actually, because of their sin, uh, other people died or were killed. When we begin to think through our lives and we begin to think through what God's doing on our journey, there's a lot of obstacles And the question is, in so many ways, how are we following the Lord in this journey of life? What are are the obstacles, what are the potential difficulties that we face that we need to run to the Lord about and to trust him with it? Because the truth of the matter is the Lord is always looking for servants that have uh, surrendered hearts to walk with him in the midst of life. And we need, as believers, to walk in his ways by faith to overcome the dangers of our journey, and they are significant. We see them all around. There is an entire world system that has been set up, that's under the authority of the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, that is contrary to God's truth, God's word. And so the battle of truth, the battle for the mind, is very real. And what we believe will be seen in how we act, what we do. And that's why this time is important. That's why it's important to get into the Word of God. It's important to sit under the teaching of the authority of the Word of God. It's important to get into the Word of God yourselves so that your mind is being renewed, so that your belief systems are in alignment with what God has said because the Lord's the one who will guide us through the pitfalls of the journey of this life. We need the Lord in order to accomplish that. We need His grace. We need Him. He's the shepherd, as David said talks about. Well, as we continue with David, one of the things that I love about David is is his friendship with Jonathan. We named our son Jonathan because we just love the the meaning of that word, Jonathan, uh, friend. 
And, and it's really amazing to watch how Holland has really taken on so many of the characteristics of her name. Um, Holland is just a, a delight to be around, and she loves the Lord, walks with God in such a sweet way, uh, really is pure in her thoughts and in her mind and her uh, motivations. And Jonathan is so much like that as well, and, and, and he's a friend. He's a friend. He and I have a great time together. It's fun. He sees sides of me that you will never see. I'm sorry. <laughs> and he laughs about it. <laughs> and I appreciate that because he's a friend to me. Jonathan and David is one of the greatest friend stories, friendships in the Bible. After killing Goliath, David speaks with Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1, where we pick this up. Says this, now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul, he came in, he had killed Goliath, he comes in to speak to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Jonathan is older than David. And in effect, Jonathan embraces David. Jonathan loves David. He becomes a soul friend to David. They cut covenant together, they become best friends. And as you carry the story out, even to the point where they've promised one another certain things, even to the point that when David becomes king, when Jonathan's been killed, that David looks for Jonathan's uh, children in order to show kindness to, and Mephibosheth, you remember him, Mephibosheth? He finds Mephibosheth, who is lame, and he goes to him, and instead of killing him, he brings him and he seats him at the king's table, and he feeds him. And it's a beautiful picture of how our king takes care of us in spite of our weakness, and in spite of the fact that we had been, in effect, rejected through sin, etc., there's a beautiful picture of David and Jonathan as they covenant together and it carries over beyond just the lifetimes that they had into the families that they had as well. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 16 and following, it says, So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. We, we get this picture of David as a, as a friend and Jonathan as somebody who comes alongside. And even though Jonathan was in line to be the king, he recognizes that David is going to be the king, that Samuel had anointed him to be the king. And even though Jonathan was in alignment to be the king, he recognizes David is the one who is going to be the king. And he loves him. He befriends him. He makes a covenant with him that impacts their relationship impacts Jonathan's children. Well, in the midst of all this, David begins to rise. He begins to rise in fame. He begins to, to rise in notor notoriety. And Saul becomes deeply jealous. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 28 through 29, it says, When Saul, Saul knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then David, or excuse me, Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. Now that's an amazing picture. Saul knows what has been said to him by Samuel, that the, the kingdom was going to be torn away from him. And so he immediately begins to be jealous of David. 
If you remember, David begins to go into battle against the Philistines after Goliath, and the Lord gives him tremendous victories. And he would come back in with the army, and the the ladies would begin to sing that Saul had killed his thousands, but David, what? His ten thousands. Oh, man, Saul's, Saul's deeply upset, disturbed by this, very jealous. His own daughter loves David. Jonathan loves David. And so he begins to be jealous and begins to pursue him. There's a long story of all the different things that Saul does in order to come after David and tries to kill him numerous times. God protects David in the midst of this. Finally, David flees and ends up for years hiding in the desert, even going into the Philistine area under the protection of one of the Philistine kings in order to get away from Saul. During this time, he had two different opportunities where he could have killed Saul, and he he did not do it because Saul was an anointed king, and David respected that. In the midst of all of this, Saul, at probably his lowest point, goes to the witch of Endor and asks for Samuel to be called back. He wants this divination to take place so that he can know what's going to happen. Instead of going to the Lord, instead of repenting, Instead of going to the Lord and finding out what God had, he goes to a witch, and this witch brings up Samuel. Samuel speaks to to Saul and says, tomorrow you and your sons are going to be with me. So I believe Saul was a believer, but I think he lost his way. And the truth of the matter is all of us can do that. Thank God for his grace and his mercy in our lives to constantly be working in order to bring us back to himself. But I'll tell you this. If we're resistant against the Lord and what he wants us to do as his children, there will be a time where I believe that the Lord will even take us home if necessary because we have become so wayward in who we are that it's time, the Lord knows, for us to come home. We see that all through the New Testament. Well, David finally becomes king, but he becomes king over Hebron, the southern area of Israel. He was anointed years before this. He's now spent years in the wilderness running from Saul, even though he had been anointed. And now Saul and Jonathan and some of the other sons were killed in battle. And David becomes king, but he becomes king just over the southern portion of Israel, the southern area. He's anointed by Samuel years before this. And now it takes him seven more years before he actually is established as king over the entire nation of Israel. 2 Samuel 2.11 says the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So during this time, right, the son of Saul, who was still living, was the king over the northern areas. And David is the king over the south. But David begins to increase in strength, and the king of the south begins to decrease in strength. Ishbosheth. Say that fast five times. 2 Samuel 3.1 says, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually to the point where finally... Ishbosheth is murdered. David begins to rule over the entire nation. They come to him in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. 
we learn this. Then all Israel gathered to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. In times past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel, and you shall be prince over my people Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord through Samuel. David becomes king. Folks, you know, it's an amazing thing when you begin to think about God's timing and stuff. Years before this, he had been anointed to be king over Israel, the whole nation. But it takes years and years. It takes trials and tribulations. You know, one thing that I've been reminded of as I've read through a lot of this and and just gleaning on it, reflecting on it, one thing that I was so blessed by is how often it is said that David went to the Lord to ask him, and I'm just going to put it into my words, what to do. What to do. Should I go down and, and should I attack the Philistines? Should I go to this city? Where should I go in order to be anointed king? What should I do? He's always going to the Lord and asking the Lord, even in things that seem so mundane. Lord, what would you have me to do? David is a man after God's own heart. He wanted to follow the Lord. Why do you think he was such a great leader? Great leadership is not just influence. It's not just service. It's first and foremost following God no matter what. And folks, we need leaders. Young people, follow God and God will take care of the leadership issue. When we begin to follow the Lord, it's going to put us in so many ways in opposition to the way the world is going, to the course of this world. When we begin to follow God, God will begin to establish us in the midst of what he has for us, what he's called us to, and the influence and the service will take care of itself because God desires for us to serve him. That's what he saved us for. That's what he's created us for. And the influence will be literally God in and through us to the people around us. Why is David such a great leader because he followed God and he went to him about everything well David is established as king over Israel you can imagine after seven and a half years and after all the all the different uh, factions and different things that are going on that it took some time in order to establish his leadership in the midst of the entire nation in 2nd Samuel chapter 5 11 he builds a palace for himself, a house, in effect. And in the midst of all this, he's concerned that the Lord still has a tent, that the Ark of the Covenant is even in Jerusalem. Jerusalem becomes the headquarters. It becomes the city of David. He captures it. He goes in, takes it over. If you remember, the Ark had been stolen, in effect, uh, during one of the battles, by the Philistines, and they sent it back, but they had never brought it back into uh, the city that it was supposed to be. Now David wants to bring it in to Jerusalem. They stayed in Kiriath-Jerim for 20 years. You can find that in 1 Samuel chapter 7. David wants to bring it back, and you know the interesting thing is this is one moment where David did not go back and check how this was supposed to take place. There's this guy that I always have felt sorry for, and you probably are with me in this. His name's Uzzah. He's killed. Why? Because they put the ark on a cart. 
and they begin to pull the ark. And everybody's dancing and celebrating because they're going to bring it back into Jerusalem. And the, the cart stumbles, the ark kind of stumbles, the ark of the covenant. And this guy reaches up because he just wants to make sure that the ark doesn't fall out of the cart. God strikes him dead on the spot. Now, folks, we don't know this guy's eternal uh, salvation, his eternal state. But the fact of the matter is God is holy and he had told them exactly how this ark was supposed to be transported. If you remember, when they brought it back from the Philistines, remember the, the two cows that had never pulled a cart before and the, the Philistines sent it away because all the plagues that had broken out, the tumors and the mice. And so the, the Philistines sent it back and said, get rid of this thing. We don't want this anymore. And, and they send it back. 50,000 people were killed because they were trying to look into the ark. God is holy. So David is fearful says that he's angry, he's fearful. So he leaves the ark with this family, Obed-Edom, for three months. And then he finds out that the Lord is actually blessing Obed-Edom, so he's glad, and he goes to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And this is the interesting thing. During that three-month period, he became a historian. He went back and he looked at the laws in Leviticus, and he looked at how, how are we supposed to transport the ark in 1 Chronicles 15.2, David said, No one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. And in 15.13, he says, Because you did not carry it at the first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us, speaking about the Levites, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. That's a really small portion in the midst of this massive story about David, but I think it's really important because what did David do? He went back to the word of God. He went back to see what is it that we are to be about? How were we supposed to do this? Why is it that we came under the judgment? Why is it that the Lord disciplined? It's because we didn't follow the word of God in the first place. Well, they bring the ark back into Jerusalem. And I love the picture of David celebrating as the ark is brought into Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel 6, 14, it says, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. All his might. To the point where his wife, Michael, right, Saul's daughter, despised him for it. Said, oh, you've made quite a scene in front of all the servant girls. And David said, I'd lower myself more than that to worship God. What a beautiful picture. What a heart for the Lord. What a heart for God. In 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 11 and following, David's given a promise. It's the promise of heir to the throne, and it's literally the promise of Christ through him. It says this, when your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers, this is the Lord speaking to David, that I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be of your sons and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house and I will establish his throne forever. Now he's talking about Solomon. He's talking about David's desire to build the temple. But the Lord told David, you can't do it. You've shed so much blood, your son's going to do this. But then he goes on, he says, I will be his father, he shall be my son, and I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Now he's getting messianic. Now he's speaking to the Lord. And David recognizes it. Not only is it in 1 Chronicles, it's also recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The whole picture here is that there is coming a descendant 
a seed through David who will sit on David's throne forever. And that picture is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. David's response is one of awe and thanksgiving for what God alone is going to do. In Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, Luke records this for us. He says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Beautiful story of David's faithfulness to the Lord and how God had raised him up, placed him on the throne, knowing David's heart and recognizing that through David, the Lord Jesus Christ himself was going to come to this earth and would rule on the throne of David from Jerusalem eternally. Well, those are all good things for the most part, right? But you can't talk about David without talking about Bathsheba, can you? In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. And there's this little sentence here. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now, folks, there's a reason that's placed there. There's a reason it says it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle. David was supposed to be out with the army defeating the enemies of God. He was supposed to be out doing what it is that as a king he was to lead in. But he wasn't. He stayed in Jerusalem. You know this story well. He sees Bathsheba. He commits adultery with her. She conceives, lets David know about it. And David goes into panic mode, cover-up mode. Uriah the Hittite. You know, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, is listed as one of David's mighty men. This isn't just a guy that's in the army that's part of the regular forces. This is a guy that has literally given his life to defend David and to fight for Israel. And he is a tremendous warrior. If you look at the list of the mighty men and the accomplishments, it's amazing what these guys did. So David sets out to make sure that Uriah is either going to be known as the father of this child, which doesn't work, or at that point now he writes a letter to Joab, the commander of the army, and he says, make sure Uriah gets placed into the thickest part of the battle so that he will be killed. And he is. Nathan, the prophet, after all this takes place and David marries Bathsheba, comes to him, gives him the story about the, the family who didn't have much and they had this little lamb that was like a family pet and somebody who was really rich and powerful comes and takes the lamb and slaughters it. David, upon hearing this, is so angry, he said, that, that person ought to die. <laughs> and Nathan points his finger at him. Can you just see Nathan? David's so blinded by his sin, he doesn't even get the story until Nathan tells him straight up, you are that man. And the beauty of it is David's total, uninhibited repentance, acknowledgement, and confession of his sin. Psalm 51, 
Against you and you alone have I sinned. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Beautiful picture of a man who recognizes his sin and is humbled before the Lord, confessing what he has done as not just something wrong, not just something bad, not just something in the heat of the moment, making excuse after excuse for what he has done, but rather for what it is, sin. And the Lord forgives him. As a result of that, however, there is a family fiasco. And I'm not going to get into all the details. I want to challenge you to read through uh, Samuel and Chronicles into 1 Kings and just kind of walk through this story. You got Absalom, you got Adonijah, and you got them trying to usurp David as king. And all the civil strife that takes place because of David's sin, there are consequences. The Lord forgives David, but there are consequences to what he has done. And the whole nation is impacted because of this particular sin. Another interesting aspect of what David did that was wrong is in 2 Samuel chapter 24. He told Joab, the commander of the army, to count all the people, all the men of war in all the different tribes. Joab is no saint. Amen? If you know Joab, this guy is no saint. But even Joab, he get, hey, king, you do want to do, do what? I don't think that's a good idea. The commanders are telling David, no, no, you don't need to count all these. Why? Because there was an idea here, not just that we need to know what's going on and we need to know how many people. There was the idea that somehow he was placing his trust in their own might. Let's see how many people were. Look how mighty we've become. And instead of trusting the Lord, he was trusting in numbers, trusting in the might that he could see, that was tangible. And as a result, he's given three options. Three options of punishment when he confesses and he repents of it. There's three different types of consequence. He chooses the one where 70,000 are killed within a three-day period of time. Folks, God is holy. I think we've lost that. Somehow we always point the finger at everybody else and say what everybody else is doing is wrong. Folks, let's start with our own lives first. Let's look at what God is doing in our own lives, how he wants to grow us and mature us. Let's look at our own activity. Let's look at our own belief systems. Let's look at our own life, lives first. Let's make sure we get the log out of our own eye before we start pointing at somebody else trying to get the speck out of theirs. Well, David makes preparations for the temple. He wants to build the temple. The Lord's told him, you're not going to do that. Solomon, your son, is going to be the next king, and he's going to do this. But David makes preparations for the building of the temple. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 19, I love this phrase because there's so much work that's gone into this. All the different timber that's brought in from Tyre and the gold and the silver that is stored up in order to make the utensils and all the different aspects of the temple. In 1 Chronicles 28, 19, David says this, all this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the details of this pattern. He's talking about the temple and he's talking about how the Lord is the one who put it on his heart and gave him insight into what the temple was supposed to look like. All the preparations, the Lord was behind the scenes through his servant David in order to accomplish this. In 1 Chronicles 29, we get this wonderful picture of giving 
First Chronicles 29, verses 6 through 9. It says this, the rulers of the father's households. This is for the temple. This is for the preparations being made. The rulers of the father's households, the princes of the tribes of Israel, and the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with the overseers over the king's work offered willingly. And for the service for the house of God, they gave 5,000 talents, 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of brass, 100,000 talents of iron. Whoever possessed precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in care of Jehiel the Gershonite. And then the people rejoiced because they had offered so willingly, for they made their offering to the Lord with a whole heart. And King David also rejoiced greatly. Folks, I know there are some of you sitting here that have been burned like tough when it comes to church and the focus on giving, focus on money. I had a guy at our house not long ago who was so angry about the manipulation because of a church when it came to giving. I get it. Catch something in this passage. Because I believe this principle carries forward into the New Testament. The New Testament isn't about a specific percentage. 10% is a good starting point. It's a good starting point. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek 400 years before the law was even given. It's a good starting point. But here's the deal with the New Testament. Here's the deal with New Testament giving. New Testament giving is to be out of the joy of our hearts. It is to be willing. It is to be sacrificial. It is because of what God has done for us. Folks, giving, as Jason talked about earlier, is an act of worship. It is a thank you, Lord. And folks, I fear that in our day, we have become so burdened or so scarred with this idea of church and giving that somehow we can't even bring it up. We can't even talk about the fact that we're a faith-based organization, that we depend upon God's people following God and out of joy, willingly, and with gladness, giving. Somehow that's become like, oh, we can't talk about that because if there are visitors here, they're going to get turned off. Folks, it's an act of worship. Is there anything that does not belong to God? All things are the Lord's. Are you not free to give as the Lord leads? Are you not free to express your gratitude to God in your own way, in, in money and with what God has blessed you with? Of course you are. I don't ever want you coming in here thinking, oh, great, you know, another stewardship campaign. What death? I mean, come on. I've heard such horror stories about this kind of stuff. But the fact of the matter is, we get to give. It's a privilege to give. And we ought to give. Folks, when I look at the potential of Hoffmantown, and I see what God's doing in this place and the students and the children, when I see what God's doing in our K groups and our leadership and all through this body of believers, I thank the Lord because I see that God is at work in the midst of this congregation. Praise God for that. Let's get engaged and start, let's start giving as the Lord would lead us. 
Let's not go backwards. Let's not struggle with budgets. Let's not struggle with how are we going to come up with money in order to do the ministries that God has called us to. Let's get engaged and say, Lord, what would you have us to do? And with freedom and gratitude and with worshipful hearts, let's give with gratitude and gratefulness and freedom to what God is accomplishing in and through and what God wants to do. Amen? All right. <laughs> Psalm 23, 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Who wrote that? Come on, wake up. You just clapped. I know you're awake. <laughs> David did. David's a psalmist. And clearly he was very skilled at the harp and all different kinds of things. Psalm 51 and, and Psalm 23 probably two of the most famous psalms that he wrote. Beautiful. Pictures of worship. Well, Solomon becomes king. David goes on, as the Bible says, to be with his father, so to speak. He goes to paradise, Abraham's bosom, awaiting the coming of the Messiah, the promised one. Solomon becomes king. Solomon's the writer of the Song of Solomon. I have never heard a, uh, <laughs> a sermon on the Song of Solomon. I personally have never preached a sermon on the Song of Solomon. It is scriptural. It's good because it's scripture. <laughs> it's scriptural. It's a love story. And the bigger picture is it's a love story with Christ himself, with God, and how God loves us. Solomon wrote that. He wrote Ecclesiastes. He wrote many other Proverbs, many Psalms. Perhaps you know this, Ecclesiastes 3.1, there's an appointed time for everything and there's a time for every event under heaven. Ecclesiastes is amazing. Amazing story. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3, Solomon loves the Lord. It says he walked in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed burned incense on the high places. The temple hadn't been built yet. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, it says, Now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Wow, the humility. The Lord responds and says, hey, you didn't ask for wealth. You didn't ask for fame. So I'm not only going to give you wisdom, I'm going to give you everything. And he does. Solomon becomes one of the wisest men, if not the wisest man, to ever walk this earth. He becomes famous at that point in time throughout the entire known world. You know the story of the two moms that came and they had this child. And they were saying, well, that's my child. And the other mom would say, no, that's my child. And Solomon said, give me a sword and let's cut the kid in half and we'll give half of the kid over here. And, half of, and then the, the real mom immediately said, no, no, no. Don't kill the child. Give, give her the child. And Solomon knew this is the real mom. Solomon's wisdom began to spread 
everywhere. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29, it says, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore. People from all over the world came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. The queen of Sheba came, pronounced him even greater than what she had been told. She comes with this huge caravan, bringing spices from her land, gold, and says, you're even greater than what I was told. People from all over the world come to hear Solomon's wisdom on nature, on what God has done, on righteousness. He talks about the breadth of Solomon's wisdom It covered all kinds of categories, including building and how to build and what to do and how to live life. It's amazing. He was given wealth and peace in 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 21 and following. He says, now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt, meaning the Jordan River to the Philistines. From the west to the east, to the border of Egypt and the south, they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. He had dominion over everything west of the river from Tipsa even to Gaza, over all the kings west of the river. And he had peace on all sides around about him. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. God not only gives them wisdom, he gives them peace from the enemies all around, from Egypt up into the north to even the west where the Moabites lived, etc., even to where the Philistines are. All these kingdoms begin to pay Solomon tribute. He becomes tremendously wealthy. In the midst of this, remember David had made all the preparations for the temple and Solomon now begins to build the temple. He places the Ark of the Covenant within it, dedicates the temple to the Lord, recognizing that God does not dwell in houses made with human hands, but rather dwells in heaven above, that he has condescended in order to live, to make his name known in the midst of Israel in this place made with human hands. Thousands of animals are sacrificed in celebration, along with countless grain offerings, and all the celebration must have been indescribable when the temple was finished. In 1 Kings chapter 9, the Lord returns to Solomon for the second time and warns him to follow the Lord with a whole heart, not to chase after other gods, or else Israel will become a byword in the house Solomon has built, will become a heap of ruins. 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 8. And unfortunately, we know that Solomon did not heed that instruction. He did not listen to the Lord. He ended up having about 700 wives and 300 concubines. And as a result of this, he got drawn into pagan idolatry, in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, it says, When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. And in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 9 and following, it's very clear that the Lord was angry with Solomon. And the reason is, is because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. So the Lord comes to him and says, you're no longer going to be, your sons are not going to be the kings of Israel. But for David's sake, there will be one because that's Christ. So he warns Solomon. He says, I won't fully tear out 
the kingdom from your hand. But he tells them, because you have not followed me, because you have not done what I have said in verse 11, you have not kept my covenant, my statutes, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. What a sad, sad moment. Now I've run through this, but let me give you some handles. Our journey's many obstacles. It has many potential difficulties. And we're to walk by faith. We have the Holy Spirit in us, never to leave. We're sealed in the Holy Spirit of promise. But we have a choice to make to walk with God. And there's a lot of difficulties. There's a lot of potential uh, trials and pitfalls that we need the Lord's wisdom in the midst of. Amen? See, there's several things out of all of this that I look at. First of all, there's the danger where Saul refused to be reconciled with David. That's a danger. On the journey of life, in the midst of all the things that we go through, one of the dangers that we can perhaps pull away from and look at these men and recognize some of them great, some of them not so great. We can look at some of the things they did, and one of the things that is very clear is that Saul refused to be reconciled to David. And we need to be careful about that as brothers and sisters in Christ. Secondly, the danger of irreverence. Irreverence. David wanted a good thing. And he wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. But he did it a wrong way. And folks, we need to be careful about being irreverent to the Lord. Somehow, in the midst of our society, in the midst of our church cultures throughout this nation, somehow God has become our, our great big buddy, the bellhop, that when we pray to and ask him to do something, he's supposed to do it because we just are so good. The truth of the matter is we need to be very careful about being irreverent to the Lord. He's holy, and we need to respect him in that. Clearly the danger of immorality, David's sin with Bathsheba. Did you catch that it didn't start with him seeing Bathsheba? It started with him not following God and doing what God would have him to do as the king because he stayed in Jerusalem instead of going out to battle. Folks, immorality doesn't just necessarily start with one moment. It starts in the mind and it starts usually before the activity of it, well before how careful do we need to be with regard to what we watch, how we allow ourselves to drift in our thinking? How quick do we need to run to the Lord, day by day, moment by moment, yielding to him and trusting him to give us the grace necessary for the pitfalls and the journey that we may face? There's the danger of independence, David's sin of counting the might of Israel. Oh, man. This idea of independence, I, you know what? Praise God for America, praise God for freedom, praise God for all that, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is spiritual independence. The idea that somehow we don't need God, that we can trust in our own might. Folks, we better be, we better be really careful about that one, amen? That one is something that impacts us day by day. And lastly, the danger of idolatry. Solomon gets caught up in an idol worship. 
He gets swayed by his wives. He was never supposed to marry that many. He had been warned about that. He did all kinds of uh, things that he was warned about. And instead of heeding those warnings, he walked in them, and as a result, he was swayed into idolatry. Folks, don't think that we're any different than that. The reason I know that is because the beloved Apostle John finished his epistle to believers, and he says, little children, guard yourselves from what? From idols. What kind of idols do we allow in our lives where we're not heeding the warning of the Lord and we've allowed things to come into our lives to where it turns into idolatry? Have we placed ourselves in a position where we are even more susceptible to sin? And let me encourage you in this. When we stumble, do we confess it with our whole heart? I love David's response. Do we get up, back up or do we wallow in our self-pity? <laughs> Isn't that what a lot of believers do? Oh, I tripped and stumbled. And they become Eeyore right on the spot. And then they want everybody else to know how terrible they are, how horrible they are, how, what a great amount of sin they've done, how they're so undeserved. Folks, confess it. Get up. Start walking in what God has done for us and trust the Lord to cleanse like he said that he would do. Stop wallowing in it. It's just false humility. It's just another form of pride. And lastly, how are we giving? I love that, that whole picture of the temple. They all came. They were so grateful to give with joy or out of compulsion. Let me close with this. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 through 14 is a beautiful picture. Solomon writes this book of Ecclesiastes, and in a nutshell, he says, I tried everything on the face of the earth. And this is the end of the story. This is the conclusion. This is how we know Solomon was a believer. Solomon repented, received forgiveness. One day we're going to get to walk with Solomon. But in Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14, he says, The conclusion, when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. Fear God, keep his commandments. In our vernacular, it's walk with God and thank God for his grace that he gives us the power to not only be transformed but then to walk in the righteous works that he's planned for us before the foundation of the earth. We get to experience God in everything. We are without excuse because it doesn't rely upon us. It relies upon Christ who has come to live within us. Are we doing that this morning? Are we watching out for the pitfalls along the journey, the things that can trip us up, cause us to stumble, get us off track, get our minds off track? Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.